Colossians 1, 1 to 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you teach us from your word? Would you give us confidence in it? Would you instruct us and build us up now? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, we've finished our study of Acts, and we're now starting a new study. So for our visitors, you're here on the right Sunday. It's the first week of the book of Colossians. And uh, Colossians is one of the letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. And so as we left Acts, Paul remained in prison in Rome. And it was during this time that he awaited to make his appeal before Caesar that he wrote a number of epistles or letters. Colossians was one of those. He wrote Ephesians. He wrote Philippians. Uh, Ephesians, we know, contains the beauty and the mystery of Christ and his church. And if you've ever studied Ephesians, you know it's very, at least, you know, we have chapters and verses and organization that kind of helps us look at it. And it's kind of very neatly divided. The first three chapters give the theological undergirding for what the gospel is and the beauty of Christ and his church. And then the last three chapters really give the practical application, what that means for us. And so we probably quote uh, a lot, at least personally to ourselves, more of the last three chapters because it's very practical. But the first three chapters are why the last three chapters are so practical. Philippians, the letter of joy. It's another favorite one to study because it's the letter of joy. You know, We all want to be joyful, and Paul does a, a great job, shows us the beauty of Christ and his humility uh, as our servant, uh, or, uh, servant on our behalf uh, to come and to lay his life down for us and to set a model for us. Well, Colossians. The theme of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ, really the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, that he is not only the head of the church, but that he is over all, and that he holds all things together, Hebrews tells us, by the word of his power. He spoke things into existence by the word of his power, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. He is supreme over all. And so I want us to not only consider that each week as we work our way through the book, but to remember that as we work our way through the book, that the theme is the supremacy of Christ. Colossae, if you try and look it up on a map, you may have trouble finding it because there's not much of it left. It's in modern-day Turkey, kind of western uh, Turkey, and there are some ruins there, not very much. Uh, Colossae was at the time a small town, but of much more import than it was later. It existed all the way back. We have records of it to 500 B.C. before then. 
Uh, King Xerxes of Persia mentions Colossae. So it had been around for a while. We don't see it pretty much after 1200 A.D. So this was right in the middle of that history, that it played a role, and particularly a role in this region for the early church, this region known as the Lycus Valley. Uh, This valley is uh, kind of a hotbed for earthquakes, and you've seen a number of earthquakes in Turkey through the years. Uh, The only earthquake I've ever felt I've been told an earthquake has happened where I was before, but I never felt anything. The only earthquake I ever felt was when I was about 100 miles from here in another part of Turkey, and it woke me up in the middle of the night, and I had no idea what was happening. It was very startling. Well, we have technology and so forth that preserves our buildings and our infrastructure, and even then, earthquakes can be severely damaging, but even more so back during this time. Earthquakes would level towns, bring things to ruin. And because Colossae was on a main path or main thoroughfare, it was also subject to military rule and occupation as well. But because even though it's dangerous and a dangerous place to live, you you might think, why would people want to live there? Well, because of this seismic activity, there were benefits as well. The volcanic soil from these eruptions was very fertile. And it was ideal both for growing as well as grazing pasture. So it was a good place to do agricultural work. The steam vents from this seismic activity created baths that people wanted to come and have experience for therapeutic reasons. They would also drink the water, um, which is strange to me because most volcanic areas I've visited, the water always smells like sulfur. Um, but for whatever reason, there was some therapeutic reason that, that, that drew people to this area. The areas that weren't fertile because of the chalkiness of the soil, well, the chalkiness created ideal waters when it ran into the waters for dyeing uh, clothes and um, garments. So between the sheep herding and the, the ideal pasture land for the sheep and the, the, dyeing, the waters for dyeing, the garment industry really sprung up in the region, and so it flourished. And this was an area, again, that was a thoroughfare, so people were coming through. Paul, uh, in this letter, refers to never having been seen before by the Colossians. So the church was planted not by Paul, and he had not visited the church at the time that he wrote this letter, although it's possible he visited after he was released from this particular time in prison. But he certainly interacted with some of the people that planted the church who came to see him in Acts 19 when it says, people from all over Asia. Paul was in Ephesus. That was kind of his hub, if you remember, when we were in Acts chapter 19. And people from all over Asia came. And it was during this time that Epaphras, which is kind of his nickname, Epaphroditus, you might remember him by that name. Uh, But Epaphras is, is kind of shorthand. Paul uses both in his letters. Epaphras and Philemon came to hear Paul. And it was as a result of this that they went back and led the planting of the church. Philemon, the letter Philemon, is closely tied to this letter here in Colossians because it deals with the same church, and so we'll hit on that as well. There's also the nearby cities of Laodicea and Hierapolis. I always want to say Hierapolis, but it's Hierapolis, Um, and they wouldn't even pronounce the H, but it's English, so we will say it that way. These churches also sprang up about the same time, and if you remember in Revelation, Laodicea is mentioned again. And so there's some significance there that we'll touch on as we work our way through the book. 
Epaphras uh, was not only important in planting the church, it was important because he was from Colossae. This was his hometown. He was a hometown boy. And this, um, uh, this, these words of affirmation that he mentions about him here uh, and in other parts of the letter that we'll see as well as in other letters knows that Epaphras was one of these guys that was, he was not a rock star. You know, he's mentioned here and there. He was a faithful minister. He just got in there and did the work. And he didn't do it for the accolades or to be recorded in history. He did it for the glory of God. Well, Epaphras was continuing the work of ministry in Colossae, and they get word that Paul is now in prison in Rome. And so he makes a journey to visit him. And it's during this time that he gives a report of what's happening in Colossae. This is what's happening in the church, he tells Paul. And any time a couple ministers get together, there's a sense of uh, brotherhood, connectedness, that you can um, let your guard down just a little bit and share the good and the bad. Now, when ministers get together in groups, that doesn't happen. All ministers do is brag, right? I mean, if you've ever been around, you know, this is happening, this is happening. But when two get together, they can kind of let their guard down and be honest. And you see some of that. He shares that there's good news, but there's also some concerns. He talks about the fruit that's evidenced in their faith and their hope and love in verses 4 and 6. In chapter 2, he talks about them being firm in their faith and encourages this. He talks about their commitment to prayer in chapter 4. So there are good things happening in the church in Colossae, but there's also some concern. There's an ongoing threat by Gnostics uh, against the person and work of Christ, and we're going to explain and look at what Gnosticism is in just a moment. There were just the general struggles that all of us face from our previous ways of life. So these were people who came out of a pagan way of life. Uh, they, they, if, if there was any religious element to their life, it was very much a superstitious uh, fear of, of kind of the divine wrath and the divine temper tantrum of a God who might get them if they make the wrong choice. It was that kind of idea. So they're coming out of that. And there was also very, there were no morals really that were guiding them. So it was a very licentious lifestyle. So there were those struggles. And there was also concern on Paul's part for Onesimus, which is what the whole letter to Philemon deals with. Philemon's very short. When we talk about Philemon, it only has one chapter. So when we say Philemon 23, we're not meaning Philemon chapter 23. It's just verse 23. There's just verses in Philemon. It's very short. And I tell you that uh, to encourage you to read it at some point as we're going through Colossians because it ties together here. Paul was concerned about this relational aspect. And because of this, he dedicates a significant part in chapter 3 to tenderness and forgiveness. He also writes at length about a relationship between slaves and masters. And so we're going to unpack all of that as we work our way through the book. Now, that's a bit of a long introduction. I'm going to stretch it out just a little bit more because I think this is very important for us to understand as we get into the book. If we don't understand particularly the problem of Gnosticism, everything may not make sense. The theme of Colossians being the supremacy of Christ is the theme for a reason. Paul didn't just pick it out of thin air. He was dealing with something very specific. And Gnosticism was the big part of the problem. It's not a common word that we use today. And so you may think, yeah, I've heard what Gnosticism is, or I even understand it, but I don't, may not have my head all the way around it. That's, that's the way I usually feel about it when I come to Gnosticism. I have to kind of remember what it is. Gnostics thought that they were just a little bit superior. They were special. And let me just say, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. 
Sometimes we pretend that they don't exist anymore. But they do. And one of the characteristics of false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing is that they always think they're special. And for a lot of people, that is very winsome. Our standard of leadership in the modern Western world is we want charismatic, powerful leaders. And so we're drawn to that. And in the church, that can be devastating. It is devastating. They think they're special. They had some kind of uh, superior knowledge. There were mystical and secretive elements to it. And so what this did was it formed this elitist attitude so that they would, in a sense, bully those who didn't possess this special knowledge because they were inferior to them so that they would then listen and learn. It was a powerful weapon in their hands. Does this remind you of anything in our modern world? You think of our own social elite, our own media. We have entertainers speaking to the rest of us with such superiority, lecturing us about knowledge and their own version of morality with zero credentials, just because they're famous. You may not fall for it, but many people, including young people, are influenced by this. They can't tell you why they think what they do. They just know that some actor or singer or athlete said some soundbite and they learn to repeat it. Academia has also come to function this way. And this is not a general knock on, on, on the academic realm. It's, education is important. But there are certainly characteristics here that are fair generalizations of academia. So many young people have not been taught to think critically for themselves so that when they go to university, they get swallowed up by the latest trends and thought, and often because of this superiority. They come back and they say, Mom, Dad, this person has a Ph.D., you don't. They know what they're talking about. So while we may not call it Gnosticism, Gnostic thoughts and patterns are well alive among us. This is what was happening in Colossae, but at a local church level. Gnostics were simply people in the know, and they used this power to lead others astray. What they taught specifically is that the physical world, and particularly matter, anything that consisted of matter, was evil. And so the problem with this, of course, was that because all matter was evil, then God could not have created it. And so God worked through a series of surrogates by creating littler or lesser gods on and on and on until they got so far removed from him that they in turn created the world and they in turn were evil. Sounds more like a cult, doesn't it? To them then, Jesus Christ wasn't the creator. So for Paul to establish Jesus as creator is a really big deal. And we'll see that as we work through this book. The incarnation is a big problem for a Gnostic. Because Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. So for them, not only was the incarnation problematic, it meant that Jesus wasn't enough. And so they then added into their system all of these rules and things that you had to follow, and they borrowed from different systems, including Judaism, and created their own legalism. And then they added some really weird stuff like secret passwords and astrology and other mystical elements. Kent Hughes, 
who teaches at Westminster now, writes in one of his commentaries, it was all very complex and proudly intellectual. The Gnostics, those in the know, looked down upon the simple Colossian believers, browbeat them, and led some astray. Sounds a lot like high school bullying. And we may think we're a long way from high school, many of us. But there's no question that these patterns still continue. And we have to keep on guard. We have to be aware. We have to know God and know His Word. And this is what Paul wanted for the Colossians. He wanted them to know, in particular, the Word made flesh. He wanted them to know Jesus. And so the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ is the theme of his book. And so because of that lengthy introduction, we're only going to look at the first few verses, and we'll move on from there next week. But let me just mention what he covers in these first few verses. It's an introduction. This is typical in his letters. It was typical in correspondence of the day, that you would introduce who you were, you would address who you were writing to, and usually write some message, uh, kind message of introduction. But Paul's was, as you might guess, a little bit unique in that he also tells not only something about himself, he tells the Colossians something about who they are. First, he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And here, his apostleship is true both in the general sense. Apostle was one who was sent, one who was an ambassador. Paul was certainly that. But he was something more. He was an apostle officially in role or office. This was a, uh, we talk about the apostolic age, this limited time uh, where Christ appointed those uh, men who were primarily the disciples, his disciples, men who had witnessed his ministry, his life, and him resurrected. That was the qualifying mark. We saw that in the first chapter of Acts as we studied Acts. And so Paul had uniquely met Christ on the road to Damascus and seen the resurrected Christ and been called as an apostle. He says that his apostleship is by the will of God. This is important because Paul didn't see himself as moving up the corporate ladder. Paul didn't see himself as achieving something that few others had. Paul's role as an apostle was appointed to him by God. It was a gift given to him. It wasn't something that he earned or something that he deserved. It wasn't something that puffed him up or made him proud. And we should learn from this, that what God has given us, the roles and the responsibilities and the spiritual gifts that he's given each of you to serve him in his church are not given to puff you up and make you proud, but to remember who gave them to you, to humble you, to strengthen and encourage you, to remind you that you need to rely on Him for the strength to carry those works out. He mentions Timothy. Timothy likely was with him, visiting him in prison. Uh, And so Timothy gets some credit here. The the believers would have known Timothy. Timothy was uh, well known in the early church as a faithful minister. And he sends his encouragement as well. He was with Paul in Acts 19. You remember when I said that these people from Colossae would have come and heard Paul preach, you remember Timothy was there with him at that time. So he's our brother, he says, our brother in the faith. There's that familial connection that we see uh, Paul describe of us as believers. And then he addresses the Colossians, and he calls them saints and fellow brothers in Christ. Now, few of us, I think this is fair, would call ourselves saints. At least I haven't heard any of you introduce yourself as saint so-and-so, uh, maybe you do that when I'm not around. No. Uh, I just, yeah, I don't think our understanding of saint, we would do this. Because we look at 
that idea of a saint as someone who's really either really, really holy or special or someone who's done a lot of good works. And that's what we see in the Roman Catholic Church. People being set apart for sainthood is usually people who have done a lot of really good things as deemed by them. But we are saints. We're called saints, not just here as believers by inference, but we're called saints in other places in Scripture as well. To be a saint is to be holy, it's to be set apart. But it's more than that. There's a sense of being committed to Christ, the idea of being in union with Christ, because our sainthood isn't based on anything that we've done. Our sainthood isn't something that we earned or that we had a right to, but it's a gift that's given to us. It's because we have been grafted into the vine that is Jesus that we are then called saints. So once again, it's humbling to remember that we have been rooted in Christ, in the vine. To be a saint is to be united, connected with Him. The phrase faithful brothers, again, a term of endearment that Paul uses, showing their connectedness to Christ, their love for Christ. These believers were not only trusting Christ as Paul was, They were trustworthy in Christ. And we're going to see that in just a moment of how our faith leads us to faithfulness, not the other way around. So we're not only to believe, but we're to be believable as Christians. We're to be authentic and true. We're not only to rely on Christ, but we become reliable in our faith in Him. Not only to Him, but to one another. And so then the greeting comes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This was a common greeting that he gave, and it really is a picture of the gospel. He's borrowing the word, or he's bringing in the the Greek word grace with the the Hebrew idea of shalom, using a Greek word, of course, here when he writes it, but bringing those together that by the grace of God, we now have peace with God, a picture of the gospel. And then this paragraph that's really a prayer, and the prayer continues, and we'll continue to look at it next, next week, but we're just going to consider this first part of the prayer, which is a prayer of thanksgiving. Paul is writing to them what he has been praying for them. And I think this is something that's actually a good example for us to consider. Rather than just telling other people, hey, I've been praying for you, which is fine and good, but also consider telling people how you've been praying for them. I find this deeply encouraging. To get a note from someone or an email or a text or or even in person To hear that someone's been praying specifically for me is especially meaningful. This is what Paul is doing here. One thing that sticks out when you look at just this paragraph is the number of times Paul says the word or writes the word you. There's nine times in the ESV that he uses the word you. And if you count yours or your, the yours, there's three more of those. That's a dozen. This is a very personal letter. Even though Paul has not met these believers face-to-face, he didn't plant this church, he hasn't worshipped together with them, he loves them in Christ. And then he mentions what he is thankful for. He's thankful for their faith and for their love. And these are mentioned here as virtues, as they are in much of other parts of Scripture. But he links it to their hope in Christ as well, which is also mentioned as a virtue. And a lot of times it's quoted by us. We talk about faith, hope, and love, right? Uh, But the greatest of these is love. We link those three things together. Those are linked here together a little bit differently. Um, They're connected to the idea of hope. 
But really, we can't dissect this too much because for us to say that we hope in anything infers or implies that there's an object of that hope. Even when we say, I hope so, we mean something by that. We're hoping in something when we say that. So to have hope is to have an object for there to be that hope in. So they're all connected. They're all connected in that they are a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions that here, that, they, that in verse 8, uh, that, that uh, the, the love has been made, or they have made, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is a result of the Spirit's work in their lives. So faith, hope, and love are all resulting fruit of the Spirit in our lives. But not only are they the fruit in our lives of God, God is not only doing this work in us, God also is the object of these fruits. He is our faith. He is our hope. He is our love. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Faith, the object as faith, is God himself. Paul, when he introduces his first letter to Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. He's also the object. And of course, we know 1 John 4, God is love. So he's not only doing this work in our lives, he is the object itself of that work. So our understanding of what God's doing is not that God saves us and then just says, run along now, go do good things. No, he is with us, in us, working through us to do these things, empowering us, directing us. And this is comforting because we're not just called to be virtuous. That's a burden that's heavy. Go be good. Next week, go be good. What if I said that to you every week? You'd get tired of coming. Because what do we do every week? We discover we're not good. We can't measure up. That's why we need Jesus. He was good on our behalf. And when we are in union with Him, we're engrafted to Him, He is then working in us to produce that fruit. And that fruit then flows out. He has given us Himself because He is our faith, our hope, and our love. So what does this look like in each of our lives? Well, faith internally is trust or belief, right? When we have faith in something, we are trusting or believing in that. But externally, what that looks like is commitment or reliability, faithfulness. Faith inwardly is trusting. Faithfulness is being reliable, commitment. Hope internally is anticipation. But what does hope look like externally? Hope always looks like striving. We want to be careful, right? We don't want to create legalism, but that's what hope looks like. You don't ever say, I hope in something and really mean it and not work to that end. Hope outwardly is striving. Love internally is affection. What does love look like externally? Is it just warm words of affection? No. Love is a verb, right? It looks like caring. It looks like uh, being concerned with. And and that affection manifests itself in good deeds for others. We're saved by grace alone. Hear me and know that. It's apart from works. It is through faith. But that faith produces works in us. 
And these examples help us see and help the Colossians to see how those things fit together. As we trust Christ, we become trustworthy. As we hope in Christ, we strive for holiness. As we love Christ, we care for others. And Paul gets at the same idea then, and another theme that jumps out from this, of this whole idea of the gospel and the truth. And he juxtaposes these two ideas. Well, he really doesn't juxtapose them. He mentions them in, in parallel, but they're actually tied together. That the gospel is the truth. It's the word of truth, he says. Now, there are those today who say that truth doesn't matter, we shouldn't judge or consider any absolute standards. In the end, love will win. And this isn't a new idea. It's been around for a long time and even rings some of Gnosticism. The attempt of people, and I get the sentiment who say love wins, is to try and demonstrate God's incredible, life-changing, world-changing love, which is true. God's love is life-changing and world-changing, but the problem with understanding love is that it becomes meaningless apart from truth. Truth is necessary to understand love. So love will win. I believe that. But love can only win if truth wins first. It has to mean something. And that is found in the gospel. Do you see how Paul links that together? The truth of the gospel and the word of truth. You know, otherwise we could call anything loving. And it happens. Taking the life of a baby in the womb is sometimes called the loving thing to do. Censoring speech can be called the loving thing to do. And I'm afraid a day is coming when even imprisonment for calling something sinful will be called the loving thing to do. Even if the words loving thing to do aren't used, they're implied when these things are called hate speech. And if you don't think that this is happening, and I'm not trying to, to, to bring gloom and despair and fear on you, but just this past week I saw pictures from a friend in Scotland, and the government is literally putting up posters warning people of using hate speech, what they, continue, what they call hate speech, homophobic language, bigoted language. And there is truly hate speech that we shouldn't use. That should not mark the Christian. But they're stretching the meaning of it way beyond what that is to basically what is political correctness, threatening imprisonment for such acts. See, without the truth, anything can be called loving or hateful for that matter. And whoever has the control gets to call the shots. This is why truth matters. Truth matters. So when we come back then to the truth of the gospel found in God's word, we then see the same effect happen in it as we did with faith, hope, and love. It manifests something. It does something. Truth corrects our unbelief and doubt, bringing us back to confidence in Christ alone. Truth corrects us from despair and brings us back to the assurance that our Deliverer is coming and He will make all things right. Truth corrects us from hatefulness and brings us back to love as Christ loved us by laying down His life for us. So we ought to lay down our lives for others. So whether we look at the theme of faith, hope, and love, or the gospel and truth in these verses, one thing shines brightly. Do you know what the answer is? It's the right answer in this case. It's Jesus. 
Jesus shines brightly. This is is the supremacy of Christ that Paul's putting on display, that he's setting up for, even as he opens the letter and greets them. He is about to put Jesus on display for the Colossians to look to and see that he is their hope. Jesus is our faith. He is our hope. Jesus is our love. He is grace. He is truth. He alone is our Savior. He alone is the hope of the world. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we consider these words from Colossians, that you would stir in our hearts to see that there is nothing else in this world that can give us hope beyond Christ. Because everything else is fading, is melting away, is changing. Even the things that we look at in our culture that concern us, they're fads and they'll be different tomorrow. And the things that concern us today won't be of the same concern tomorrow. And yet there'll be new threats, new challenges, new things that would lead us astray. But one thing remains the same, and that's you. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for that we thank you. And I pray that you would stir up in us the great hope that we have in Christ. And I pray that for each person here, but I pray that especially for anyone who does not trust in Christ yet that you would work in their lives to cause them to to want to open their eyes, Lord, cause them to want to trust Christ, to discover the hope that is beyond understanding and explanation, but also beyond this world and anything that can impede it. Lord, build our faith in you. And then as you do that work, Lord, that fruit, bring that fruit out, that others would see our good works and glorify you in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.